You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Well, g'day, City on a Hill. Great to be with you. Uh, if you're tuning in for the very first time, my name is Guy, and uh, it's my joy and privilege to serve as the senior pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches uh, here in Melbourne, uh, Geelong, Brisbane, Gold Coast, Surf Coast, uh, as well as Wollongong. Uh, we're all united around knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And so wherever you are today, I trust and I pray uh, that God fills your home and indeed your heart uh, with the good news of Jesus. You know, uh, since uh, we Victorians went into our fourth, no, strike that, our fifth lockdown, I can't help but feel trapped uh, with Bill Murray in the 1993 classic Groundhog Day. Uh, by show of emojis, how many of you remember this uh, classic movie? Great, great film. Well, here is Phil, played by Bill Murray, this pessimistic, self-absorbed weatherman uh, who goes to this small town to cover the big story of a weather forecasting groundhog. Uh, it's his fourth time running the same story and he goes to no effort hiding his frustration about it all. But the plot thickens when he wakes up the next day and discovers... It's Groundhog Day again, and then again, and then again. At first, he struggles to make sense of it all, but once he accepts it, he realizes he is living the same boring day in the same dreary town over and over again. What does Phil do with the reality of this monotonous, stuck, lockdown life, what would you do to break free? Well, at first, Phil dives into a life of hedonistic pleasure. He starts drinking coffee straight from the jug. Uh, he takes up smoking cigarettes. Uh, he gorges himself on donuts. 
Uh, he goes out and has a series of one-night stands. He actually robs uh, an armored car and buys the most expensive car in town, thinking that that might give him some freedom, but it's not enough. Uh, it doesn't help him break free from the despair of it all. In fact, the emptiness of all of this worldliness drives him over the edge, and even then he discovers that death itself is not powerful to set him free. And so then he decides to, to take up art, and reading and philosophy, he learns French poetry and even ice sculpting, all to become a more well-rounded man. But even that is not enough to set him free. What is the one thing that sets Phil free? The one thing that breaks this curse of monotony and frustration? It isn't pleasure. It isn't money, it isn't knowledge, it isn't art, it isn't sourdough bread. It's love. It's love. The last thing Phil does on Groundhog Day is stare into the eyes of Rita. And who is Rita? She's a woman that Phil cares about deeply. He loves her and Rita's a woman who cares about him deeply. Late into the night, Phil says, I don't know what will happen tomorrow. All I know is I'm happy right now because I love you. The following day, Phil is born again. Instead of hating life, Phil looks out onto the street he's seen a thousand times before and he says, it's beautiful, let's live here. At the start of the movie, he's grumpy, he's self-absorbed, but by the end, he's alive with contentment, gratitude and joy. The great author Victor Hugo once said, the greatest happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved. Loved for ourselves or rather loved in spite of ourselves. You know what? He's right. Of course, when it comes to the love we so desperately need, Hollywood can only take us so far. Uh, we need a Love that transcends this world, a, a deep and meaningful love that is secure and steadfast. We need a love that is so powerful uh, that it not only has the power to break the shackles of this world, but can transform us from the inside out. This is why it is so good that, that we get an opportunity right now to go into God's Word because here in the Bible, we encounter afresh the good news of God's love. For those checking into our series, it's helpful to know uh, we are journeying through the book of Exodus, which at its heart is a story of God's great rescue in His great love. Enslaved in Egypt by a cruel and capricious king, God delivers Israel and has brought them to himself. Today, we're in Exodus 25, looking specifically at the building of the tabernacle. Now, I know the building of the tabernacle might appear to many as a little bit insignificant and incidental, but as we're going to see, the building of God's sanctuary is a powerful sign of God's character and an expression of His great love. If you have a Bible handy, why don't you go grab it and come with me to our reading, beginning in verse 1. The writer says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they 
may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, uh, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Three insights to share with you today. The first is that the tabernacle is the sanctuary of God's holiness, right? It's the sanctuary of God's holiness. Now, whenever we talk about the holiness of God, we're speaking of God's absolute uh, morality and perfection, right? doesn't matter how deep you go into the wardrobe of God's life, all you will discover is glory upon goodness, upon glory, upon goodness. But as I've shared throughout this series already, to say God is holy is also and perhaps primarily uh, a declaration of God's transcendence, right? Uh, Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this, God's holiness is his godness. It is his being God in all that it means for him to be God. To meet God in his holiness, therefore, is to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God and not man. Don't you love that line? To be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God and not man. Right? Like the sun at the center of the solar system that gives all the light and warmth and energy we so desperately need. So you and me were made for God. And yet to, to fly directly into the sun would lead to certain death. In the same way, we who are unholy and unrighteous cannot enter the presence of God without being consumed by His holiness, His transcendence, His fire. And this is so uh, important in understanding the, tabern the tabernacle. When God gives Moses and the people of Israel instructions, and there are many instructions, many chapters devoted to the building of the temple. When He does this, He purposely puts in place a series of barriers and limitations to separate Israel from the holiness of God, right? So for example, in that picture, you'll see, and you can read it in your scriptures, you have instructions on the outer sanctuary, right? Which are designed to separate, right? To keep out what is public from what is private or what is unholy from what is holy. Then as you enter, you'll see that there is a bronze altar, right? The place where animals were sacrificed, right? This was for Israel a reminder of their ongoing mess and sin and the separation that they had with God. And of course, all of this prepared you for the inner sanctuary. Inside the inner sanctuary was the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Ten Commandments lay, a space that only a high priest would enter once a year. What is the point of all of this? God 
is holy, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God, says Isaiah. He is really, truly, perfectly holy. You cannot approach God lightly. You cannot approach God flippantly. He is God. He is majestic, perfect in righteousness, abounding in glory. He is holy. And in His holiness, we are called again and again to fear the Lord. Now, I know the term fear or Fearing God is, is one that can be a little bit uncomfortable for us to hear. And that's perhaps because throughout the scriptures, we are told not to fear, right? But it's important for you to realize that there's a vast distinction between fearing man and a rightful, holy inspired, pure fear and reverence that we are to have when we approach the presence of God. You know, as a child, I always felt at home in the ocean, even today, uh, not at winter in Melbourne, but at summertime in Melbourne. I, I just, my happy place is running from the sand and diving into beautiful blue waters. I, I, I feel very free, very alive in that. And yet as a young kid who loved the ocean, I also learned to respect the ocean. Uh, my older brother, when he was teaching me how to surf, I remember it like yesterday. Here I am paddling on my board, trying to get to the outer break. And yet as I'm approaching like the final set of waves, I see this six foot giant wave coming my way. Now for those surfers, you know you've either got to kind of duck under that or paddle over the top, which is the choice I made. Wrong decision because as I got to the top of the wave, it began to break and I went crashing back into the set of the waves. And you'll know with that kind of force, it throws you under the water and you get lost in this cycle where you can't breathe and you're desperate to get out. And even if you manage to get out, which I did, I had to await another series of waves crashing me down, right? It was terrible, it was awful. But in that moment, I learned a valuable lesson. I learned to respect the ocean, right? How much more when it comes to our understanding of the presence and the power and the holiness of God? How much when it comes to His majesty, His power? Is God warm and inviting? Absolutely. There is no greater freedom than to dive into His presence. And yet, like an ocean of mighty waves, so the holiness of God demands our full respect and fear. Ask yourself now, when it comes to reading the Bible, do you pick apart what you like and what you don't like, what you agree with and what you don't, or do you stand in submission? When you rise tomorrow morning, Will you go to God with just a shopping list of requests? Or will you stand in awe of His majesty and His glory? When it comes to fighting sin and temptation in your life, will you fight in your own strength? Or worse yet, yield to your flesh? Or do you see the holiness of God and pursue a righteousness that is fitting for His glory and His love? 
when it comes to the needs of justice and mercy that you see in your neighborhood and indeed around this world? Do you walk with indifference and apathy? Or do you embrace the holiness of God and extend His light and love? And when it comes to the frustrations of this world, the pain of disappointment and yet another lockdown, more restrictions, border closures, Zoom meetings, do you raise your fist telling God all the reasons He's wrong? Or do you yield in reverence and in trust and in submission for the Holy holy, holy God. Now, I'm not here to tell you um, that I've arrived in any of those things. Uh, There is times where there is a distance between the ideal and what I so desperately want in how I actually live. And this is why I need, you need the sanctuary of God to see His holiness, to arise every morning with a true and right conviction that He is God and we are not. Instead of leaning to ourselves and treating God lightly and flippantly, we are called to worship God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. Right? The Bible says to us in the New Testament, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is holy. He's holy. He's holy. This leads to the second observation. The sanctuary of our king. The tabernacle reveals that this is the sanctuary of our king. Look to verse 3. The Lord says, And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Now what you'll read, and I encourage you to do this in your gospel communities this week, what you'll read in the chapters that follow is how these materials of gold, silver, and bronze were used by Israel in the building up of the tabernacle and the many things that made up the tabernacle, right? So the altars, the the table, the golden lampstand, and of course, the Ark of the Covenant. And what do these materials signify? God's value and beauty, right? So God didn't want to build a house with scraps and cheap material, the Lord brought together that which was precious. And God's desire for a house of precious metals not only signifies His wealth and His beauty, but also, and perhaps more importantly, it signifies signifies His place among Israel as their Lord and as their King. All right, so check out verse 26. The Lord says, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. All right, so one of the striking features in the temple is the color blue. Well, what is the significance of blue? Well, it's been said that blue resembles the sea, the sea resembles the heavens, the heavens resemble God's throne of glory. 
And then alongside the blue is what? A purple veil, right? The Lord says you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. Uh, I must confess, I don't have a lot of purple in my, I don't think I've got any purple in my wardrobe at home as a Melbourneian. Most of my fashion choices are a choice between black and black. That's pretty much it. But it's worth noting that in the ancient world, a purple veil, um, any purple item in fact, would have been incredibly rare and expensive. Right? It's not something you just get from, I don't know, Spotlight or, or Target. It, it, it was actually acquired from the dye of snails in the ocean. Right? Really rare and expensive, expensive like gold. And this is why throughout ancient history, purple was always associated with royalty. Right? You may remember Daniel in Babylon, uh, Belshazzar uh, dressing him in purple clothes to signify that he was being lifted up as a ruler in the kingdom. All of which to say the purple veil in the tabernacle is a clear and constant reminder to Israel that the one who rescued them from Egypt is not only their savior, but their Lord and King. And then of course is the ark itself. Inside the ark, uh, we're told that it contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, right? The stone tablets of the covenant were, of course, the, the writings of the Ten Commandments. Why did God want the Ten Commandments to be in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant? Because His Word was the law and constitution around which the people of Israel were to Live. Think about it. When it came to defining truth and making decisions about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, God was telling Israel to not look within themselves. Definitely don't look to the pagan kings of the other nations. No. Where were they to look? To the one who sits on the throne. God is the one who reigns. God is the one who rules. God is the one who is Lord over all. And the significance of God's rule is typified in how Israel organized their life around the tabernacle, right? Did you know where Israel pitched their tents in relation to the tabernacle? It wasn't above. It wasn't below the tabernacle. In the book of Numbers, we are told that the men of Israel, men and women of Israel, were called to pitch their tents around the tabernacle. In other words, their whole life, think about this, see this, their whole life was to be centered on the sanctuary of God and the glory of His throne. Right? So imagine you're, you're a young Israelite boy or girl. You arise every day looking out at what is central in your life and it is the tent the sanctuary, the holiness, the kingship of their God. He was at the center. I think it's true, fair, right to say that if you walked into most Aussie homes today and looked at how we organized our lives 
and considered what was at the center. What would be at the center? The TV. <laughs> there is a very good chance that if you walked in any Australian home, you'll see that the home is organized around the TV. The TV is the holy of holies. Why? Because it's on the TV that most Aussies are discipled and, and learn their truth. It's where we access our news. It's where we watch re, uh, reality TV and enter into our drama. Uh, it's where we have connection. And in fact, it's where we go for community. I could almost guarantee that most people today know more about the characters in their favorite Netflix drama than they do the neighbors down the street, right? It's the holy of holies that we center our life around. Now, let me make a confession. I have not abandoned TV screens in our home uh, at all. I think it's a great entertainment and, and TV and, and watching is, is, is fine for a family to have. But, but what I want to point out is how radically different life for Israel was with life for us today. Because here in Exodus, whether they were arising in the morning or, or going to bed at night, it was very clear that God was at the center. He was their truth. He was the one that they would go to for the news and information and the law that they needed. He was the one they would go to for reality, the only true reality that had ever existed. He was their drama, the glory in this moment. He was their connection and he was their community. And of course, he was their king. And so instead of debating his word, they were called to obey his word. Instead of making God a part of their life, they surrendered all of their life. Instead of treating God with indifference, they would honor God knowing he was their Lord and King. That is challenging for our generation. Not only because our hearts are so often distracted and divided, but because we have been discipled in a culture that prizes, esteems, self-governance, um, autonomy, and our own individualism, right? Instead of putting God at the center of their life, we're told that we should be at the center of our life. Like Jack, I think his name is Jack in the Titanic, standing at the bow of the ship. What does he say? I'm the king of the world. Right? That's the banner under which our generation lives. We are our own kings. And it's tragic to see how that idolatry seeps into the church and now distorts our view of Jesus and his kingship and his lordship over our life. You know, we want a Jesus of acceptance, but we have little room for a Jesus of authority. We want a Jesus who welcomes and affirms us, but never tells us how to live. We want a Jesus who talks of heaven, but never talks of hell. We want a Jesus who offers forgiveness, but never cries out for repentance. But that's not the Jesus, the full picture of Jesus that we encounter in his word. Do you remember what they placed on Jesus as he went to the cross? a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And above his head, what did they write? The King of the Jews. Now they did that, the Romans did that to mock Jesus, didn't they? 
but it was perhaps the most true statement that Rome had ever written. Jesus, the King. Jesus, the King. If, if you are in Christ today, then you must recognize that Jesus is not only your Savior, He is and must be your Lord and King. And so, pitch the tent of your prayer life around Him. Pitch the tent of your finances and how you use your money around Him. Pitch the tent of your family around Him. Pitch the tent of your study and your career and your hopes and your dreams around Him. Pitch the tent of your whole life around God because God is holy and God is our King. And this leads to our third and and final point. When we're talking about the tabernacle, we need to see that this is the sanctuary and the home of God. So up until this point, you know, we've talked about the holiness of God and we've talked about the kingship of God, but the building of the tabernacle is not just about His holiness and His kingship. It is also a means of grace to reveal to Israel and this world, and you and I today, God's passion and commitment to dwell among His people. Right? So look again to verse 8. The Lord says, Let them make a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Did you know that when Joseph and his descendants moved into Egypt, the king permitted Israel to reside in Egypt, provided they remained in the land of Goshen. But where is the land of Goshen? Well, it turns out that Goshen was located on the eastern part of the Nile, right? It was part of Egypt, but only just, right? It'd be like welcoming people to Melbourne, but telling them they could only live in Horsham, right? Now, I've got nothing against Horsham. I'm sure it's a wonderful place to live, but it's very, very far from the city. And so if you grew up among the people of Israel, you lived a very, very far, long way away from the royal palace, right? You would have known about the king of Egypt, but like most, like most kings of the world, he was only ever seen from a distance. And in many ways, this distance is something of how power works in our world today. And yet what does God do? He does what no other God, no other king, no other celebrity would do. He comes down. God comes down to dwell among his people. Not above, not at arm's length. He comes and pitches a tent right bang in the middle. Did he need to? No. But it appears that God wanted to. He wanted to make his home among Israel, right? Isn't that the purpose of this tent? Isn't that the reason for the lampstand, the table? Isn't that symbolized in the imagery of the cherubim and the ark, right? These are all signs and symbols to help Israel know that God was making his home among us. And of course, as Christians, 
Those of us on the other side of the New Testament, can you not see how this is fulfilled perfectly and eternally in Jesus? Right in John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Word comes from a Greek word, logos, which was a bit of a buzzword for philosophers and ancient religious types. You know, for philosophers, it spoke of divine reason, all right? The reason for life, the the reason for our meaning and purpose and the cosmos and everything that makes up our humanity and this world. According to John, this word was with God and the word was God. And then John says something that would have floored all the philosophers and religious types. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The logos, the reason for life, the reason for God. The very purpose and essence of our existence is not a distant truth or an abstract principle. The Word has dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. And that word dwelt is literally tabernacle. God has pitched His tent among us. Isn't that extraordinary? You know, philosophers speculate up. They're forever speculating up about how the world works. Religion is forever climbing up, trying to earn their way up into heaven. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come down, came down into the mess and muck of this world, came into the monotony, futility and frustration of our human experience. And in coming down, Jesus didn't reside in some royal palace on top of a hill. What we see in Jesus is that Jesus goes deep. He's personal. He enters in. Uh, One of my favorite uh, little stories in the Gospel of Luke is of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, right? This, This short little guy who's basically rips off people for a living, He's like considered the scum of the earth. Uh, He hears about Jesus and he climbs up this tree to watch as Jesus comes his way, right? No one wants to be near this guy. He's like, I don't know, removalist from New South Wales with COVID who's breaking all the rules. No one wants to go near him, right? So he's up in this tree and he sees Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Who does that? Who who among us would truly enter on in into the house of the sinner, the tax collector, the outcast, the reject, the rebellious, the broken, the messy? Who enters in like that? Jesus. Jesus enters in. And of course, the greatest miracle of all was where? Upon putting on that purple robe and wearing that crown of thorns. Jesus goes, he enters into the suffering, the mess, the brokenness of that Roman cross. And what happens when he takes on the judgment of our sin, of your sin? What happens when he sits under the wrath of God that we deserve? Matthew says, and when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The purple veil, the veil that separated the holy of holies was torn in two, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. Why does Matthew, a a man of Jewish descent, point this out? Because Christ is the veil. As he was torn in two by his Father in heaven. So God is making a way for us to enter into the presence of God and approach his throne with confidence. Not because of our sacrifice, but because of his sacrifice. Not because of my righteousness, but because of his righteousness. Not because of our holiness, but because of his holiness. Did Jesus die for your sins? Absolutely. Does Jesus take away the wrath that belonged to you and me? You bet. But that was never the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to bring you home, to bring you to God, right? 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. In Jesus, God has made a way. God made a way for us to live with him and he to now live with us. And how does he do that? By his spirit. Ephesians 1, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth and the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Do you hear the promise? The promise is that when you believe in Jesus and the message, the true message of the gospel, the Spirit of God takes residence in us, right? You together with the church of Jesus Christ are now God's living temple. What does that mean? Well, for a start, it means that your body matters and what you do with your body matters, right? So in 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, uh, tells Christians off for sleeping around with prostitutes. Is Paul anti-sex? No. It's because he knows that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and the glory of your body and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit not only shapes now how you relate to this world and how you relate to others, but how we now commune with God. Do you know the very first Christian book, see next to the Bible, but the very first Christian book I ever was given and I ever read uh, was called Good Morning Holy Spirit. And it was by Benny Hinn. Uh, you know Benny Hinn, white suit, Benny Hinn. Gold teeth, Benny Hinn, call now, donate your money, Benny Hinn, that guy. Um, uh, I don't want to like recommend all of his material because it's the only book that I've ever read and there's a lot of stuff that I've seen that would make me very, very nervous. But as a new believer, trying to grasp what it meant to know the Holy Spirit, I found this incredibly helpful to know that the Spirit of God was there with me teaching me, comforting me, encouraging me, convicting and correcting me. And that I could go to God. I could lean into God at any hour, at any day, because he was 
there, right? The practical implications of the Holy Spirit in your life are, are tremendous, right? Do you want to see, for example, growth in your life, maturity in your life? Do you want to grow to become more and more like Jesus? Right? Well, you can't do that in your own strength. The Bible says that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness are fruit of the Spirit. In other words, to grow as a man, to grow as a woman, you need more of God's Spirit in you. Right? The same goes for parenting. My wife and I are forever pulling out our hair trying to work out how do we lead and guide and encourage and mature our four kids. There's so many parenting books and blogs out there, but ultimately, I mean, they're fine, but ultimately, what do our kids need? They need their hearts transformed by the good news of the gospel and the indwelling work of the Spirit. He is the one who is going to transform them. He is the one who is going to mature mature them. Uh, What about courage and boldness in your faith? I know a lot of Christians are freaking out right now fearful of this secular age and all the rights that be under attack. And, you know, there's a good place to have a conversation about that. But do you notice what the early church does when they are under attack? They prayed. They huddled in a room and they pray. You can read this in Acts 4, for example, right? People are in jail. People are losing their heads and there they are praying. And what happens? They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke says that they go on preaching the gospel with boldness, right? It wasn't as if uh, uh, it wasn't as if the persecutions just went away, but by the power of the Spirit, they had a renewed courage and conviction that enabled them to rise up. Uh, what about making a difference in this world? I know a lot of us are really eager to make a difference in this world. We want to impact people's lives and we spend a lot of money trying to learn and understand how we can do that. Well, we just look at the early church, look at the disciples. How did they make a difference? Were they smart? Were they skillful? Sure, but really, ultimately, they were filled with the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. The miracles that we see, the churches that were planted, uh, the, the people who were healed, the, the sick that were, were, were cared for, the, the demon-possessed who were, were cast out. They, they didn't do that in their own strength. That was the, the work of the Holy Spirit in them. That's the glory of the tabernacle. At the sanctuary of God, we see His holiness. Oh, we see His kingship. And we see that God wants to dwell not just with us, but in us. And so wherever you are right now, as we finish and we prepare to sing, I, I want to take a moment to, for us all to pray, wherever you are in your living room, your bedroom, just to wherever you are, just with me right now, why don't you put your hands out like this and let's pray that God would fill us afresh with His Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you're a loving God, a good God, who invites us to know you and to enjoy you. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you give freely to those who believe the good news of the gospel. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Occupy every room in our life that we would be a people who would live for you 
who would obey you, who would trust and worship you. We thank you, Lord. We receive every good gift that you give us in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.